what glorious truth that we indeed can boast in nothing but Jesus Christ, for it is his wounds that have paid our ransom. Today we turn our attention to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Uh, this is our sermon text as I read it now. Would you stand, if you're able, out of respect for God's word? This is indeed the inspired word of God. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we, we come to you and we, we indeed today know that we can boast of, of no wisdom, we can boast of no goodness, we can boast of no holiness within us except that which has been imputed to us by you. For it is the righteousness of Christ Jesus that makes us righteous before you. And that righteousness is ours, not through anything we have done, but by your grace alone. And so we pray that you would make us to know that all the more, that that would humble us, that we would realize our need to sit beneath your wisdom. May you speak to us today with that wisdom. If there is anywhere that I am speaking counter to that, Lord, I pray that you would cause those words merely to fall to the ground, unheard and unheeded. But where you are speaking, Lord, convict us of sin and cause us to walk in the holiness that you have already granted to us. Cause us to see Christ in his glory and cause us to worship you. We pray this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> Well, I've got a question for you. Who among us is ready for the election to be over? Yeah, yeah? exactly. I mean, the, the phone calls, the text messages, the mailings, the TV commercials, I've had it up to here with them. I'm just done, right? The TV commercials especially. Aaron and I were talking about this just the other day. Uh, it, it, it's funny how... They don't even tell you who you should vote for, right? They just tell you whatever you do, don't vote for this person, right? And you don't even need to have the audio on. We, regardless of what the commercials are, whether they have to deal with the election or not, we tend to mute the commercials when we're watching TV. Um, and, and you can still tell looking at them, right? Because, because the commercial will come on and it'll show you a candidate 
and his picture is there in stark black and white, right? And he's got this, this frown on his face, and he looks kind of mean and angry, right? And, and, and then they'll put graphics on there that are all kind of jarring, and, and, and like, wow, this guy's clearly a bad guy. I'm not supposed to vote for him, right? That's just kind of the way that this political advertising is done. And you know why they do it that way? Because it works. That's why they do it that way. Because it works. What they're doing is they're playing on our fears, on our worries. And among the greatest of our worries is the idea that we might suffer. And I guess it makes sense that we would be worried about suffering on one hand, because you know what? There's a lot of suffering in the world. And all of us have experienced it. And, and all of us will continue to experience it. And you know what? That's going to happen regardless of who gets elected. So it's pretty easy to say, if this guy gets elected, there's going to be suffering. Well, yeah, there will be. It's absolutely true. So the question is, what, what should we do in light of the suffering that exists in this world? And this text today, I think, speaks to a few different responses, or, or not even responses, but just, just three different things we should do in light of the fact that there is such prevalent suffering. The first of which it tells us is that we should be zealous for good. Be zealous for good. It's right there, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The term that Peter uses here that, that speaks of this zeal, this zealousness, is, is a word that actually had deep political overtones in Israel in the first century. Right, we, we think of the Lord's uh, disciple, Simon the Zealot, right? The, and the Zealots were, were a group of people who were the, the most politically involved, the most, most passionate, politically passionate of all the people of Israel. They, they saw everything through that lens and saw the, the most important thing that needed to be done was was to remove the governing rulers of that day, these pagan Romans who had come in and were ruling things, and they thought, of all the problems we have in our society, the first one we need to take care of, the one we most need to take care of, is, is these foreign pagan rulers that aren't ruling in line with what God has for us. They're not ruling in line with God's word. They're not ruling in line with God's direction. And so we need to kick them out and bring in a more godly government. That is what the, the zealots, which were kind of like a, a party almost, unto themselves believed. It's of note uh, that, that we to this day are still uh, pretty quick to look to the power structures of this world to accomplish our purposes, aren't we? We, we uh, forget the words of Psalm 146. Put not your trust in princes 
in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. We forget that Jesus actually already is king and seated upon his throne. We forget that Jesus tells us that his kingdom is not of this world. We forget that our citizenship is of heaven. And so Peter exhorts us and his readers here in this verse to not become political extremists who spend all their time and their energy and their resources on accomplishing political goals, but rather says that they are to be zealous for doing good. Now perhaps you're asking, well, what, what exactly does he mean by doing good? What, what, what does the Bible mean when it says doing good? What, what is good? Well, the Bible answers that question also. Right? It's, it's actually one of my very favorite verses. I've mentioned it quite often, Micah 6, 8. It actually says, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now there's a whole lot of benefits to this. There's a whole lot of benefits to it. First of all, it's merely being faithful and that in and of itself should be enough, right? Anytime we have the choice between being faithful and being unfaithful, right? It, we should choose faithful. I, I saw somebody make the point this last week actually said, said that Jesus plus nothing equals everything, right? And everything minus Jesus equals nothing. I thought that was a great little syllogism, right? Because, because it's true. Faithfulness in and of itself is a good thing. But he says, beyond that, there, there are benefits, right? It says, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for being good? Because, because that's the way God has ordered things. And, and naturally, actually, uh, people will be, you'll find, more naturally predisposed to be kind to you if you are kind to them. That's kind of common sense, isn't it? Right? As we are nice to other people, as we are helpful to other people, as we are loving and generous and humble and, and good, other people will be more predisposed to be kind to you. It doesn't mean it will always happen, but it will be the case more often than not. Proverbs 16, 7 says it this way, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. It's proverbial wisdom. That doesn't mean it's always true, but it means it's kind of the way that God has structured the world to work. But more times than not, that is how things do work. Now, there are times still, even when we act in a good way, sometimes specifically because we act in a good way, people will seek to do us harm. And perhaps there will be harm done to us, but we have the confidence of knowing it will not be ultimate harm that is done to us. Because we know that God is at work for his glory and for our good through all things. He's the sovereign king who works out all things for his purposes. And, and so we can be confident in that. This will not eliminate suffering, 
because we live in a broken and fallen world. And, and there will be people who are steadfastly working against the designs and direction of God. But we can have confidence in that and be encouraged in that. Sometimes, though, like I said, we will actually suffer for doing good. And so that's kind of the second point. Be ready to suffer for doing good. Okay? You just have to be ready for it. You have to realize that that might happen, that persecution might come against you, that suffering might come to you, that this is just a reality. It's not the normal course of things. It's not the way things ought to be. But Peter knew enough to realize that this is how it often does happen. It was even happening to some of the people there that he was speaking to. Perhaps it's happening to you even now. If so, Peter has this word of encouragement to you in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Do you remember uh, the old TV show, ABC's Wide World of Sports, came on on Saturday afternoons, back in a day pre-cable when there wasn't, uh, you know, 14,000 different sports networks that you could watch things on. And, and so people would tune in to watch, you know, like cliff diving and, and uh, you know, people playing some kind of crazy sport you've never seen off in the African jungle or something, just because because, you know, it was the only sport you could watch. And so you watched it, and at least if you're a sports fan like me. But, but you remember how it began each week. Jim McKay would say those words, spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sports. The thrill of victory. Bum, 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 bum. And the agony of defeat. Bum, 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 bum. Right? The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Just this past week, I, I came across a thing I had posted once on Twitter. It talked about the fact that it is such a joy to us, such a, an encouragement that if we are in Christ Jesus, then the thrill of victory is our ultimate destiny. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know? And that's part of why I love sports so much is because when you get to experience that thrill of victory and to know that each of us who are in Christ Jesus will, will experience the ultimate thrill of the ultimate victory is a wonderful thing. But the reality is that Christ often prepares us for that thrill of victory through the agony of defeat. Sometimes he is chipping away at the rough edges that are on us. Sometimes he's, he is refining us like gold, right? You know, purifying us, melting away the dross, the, the impurities, making us more pure and ready for him. Can, consider Peter, he knew more intimately perhaps than any of us how much this is true right how how he had to endure certain failings certain certain failings that were his own and then also certain persecutions that would come his way he knew them far too 
well. Yet he says here in this book, just in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here in verse 14 of our text today, he says, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. It's the same word Jesus uses in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, during the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says something very similar. It's probably where Peter learned this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we will face persecution. We know that, and we know that it is blessed. And yet there, there are some different ways that sometimes we, we react that aren't right. First off, sometimes we still fear persecution. We fear opposition. We fear this suffering, and we flee from it at all costs. Right? We compromise our faith at every turn. We, we fear man rather than God. And this is obviously wrong. John 16 tells us, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, Jesus says. I have overcome the world. Paul in Romans says, if God is for us, who can be against us? John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, said, with God on his side, man is always in the majority. I like that. Right? You plus God equals a majority. Actually, God equals a majority. <laughs> and you are in the majority if you are on his side. And so Peter tells us here in the text today, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Right? It, it, it's a natural response for us to be fearful. That's, that's the way that we respond if we live a perfectly natural life. But that's, that's the world. That's not us. We we live a supernatural existence, empowered by a supernatural spirit that dwells within us. So we are called to respond differently than the world does. Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah 8, speaking to the people of God. He says, The Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of his people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all the people call conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. It's not easy. Remember, this is Peter saying this. Three times he denied Christ. Why? Because he was fearful. Even after that, even after Jesus is reinstated, even after he'd seen the resurrected Christ and walked with him, even after Christ had risen and, and, and ascended to heaven, right? And Peter had actually, actually had God work through him in mighty and incredible ways. He still became fearful of people, didn't he? When he refused to eat with the Gentiles out of fear for the Jews. So, so when he tells us not to fear here, is he just a hypocrite? Right? Is that, 
Is it just a, you know, do as I say, not as I do type of moment for Peter? No, it's not. He's telling us here what he has learned. That even as he has failed in the past, God can still use him. And even as we have failed in the past, God can still use us. But this is what we are called to do, not be troubled, shaken, disturbed, fearful, right? Jesus and the gospel speak to our eternal well-being, yes, but they speak to our present well-being as well. Not just physical, but emotional, right? And and so we don't need to be fearful. And and how do we do that? Well, we, we do that by shifting our attention away from our troubles, away from our fears, away from the world that is around us, that threatens us, and focus instead on Christ Jesus our Lord. Focus on God our Father. Focus on his love for us. I've, I've told the story before about the time I took Jack to get a shot when he was a little kid, and, and he was dreadfully fearful of getting shots, right? He says, I, I, I don't want to get shot, right? So he said, I don't want to get shot, you know? Don't, don't shoot me. You know? But he knew. When you stick a needle in your arm or your leg, it hurts, right? He, he realized that. He was young still, but he realized it. And, and we took him there to get the shot, and he, he just was throwing a fit and, and just was all worked up because he saw the needle, and he, he saw it there. And I told him, Jack, I said, Jack, don't look at the needle. Look at me. Look at me. Calm down. Don't be fearful. Look at me. Your father, I love you. Look to me. It will be okay. I promise you. Trust me. Look to me. Right? And then he finally calmed down and and said, okay, okay, you can give me the shot now. He said, Jack, we've already given you the shot. You You know, he had gotten so worked up and was so caught up in everything he didn't even realize when it happened right you know and and we're that way right we get so caught up in in focusing on the troubles and on the worries and and they become bigger than themselves right our our fear of an eventual reality is so much worse than the eventual reality itself right we need to look instead to our father and to see his love peter knew this better than anyone right Remember the time back in Matthew 14, Peter was out with the disciples on a boat, on the water, a storm arise, the wind, the waves crashing against the boat. They're there, they're worried, they're fearful. They know the sea, they know that, that the storms arise, they know they can be deadly, they know that they can, they can cause great havoc, they know that they are in trouble. But then they see something, they see something coming across the water and you thought they were fearful before but but now they're even more fearful because they think they see a ghost in the midst of all of this right but it's not a ghost it's Jesus and Jesus says to them take heart it is I do not be afraid and Peter says well Lord if it's you then tell me to come to you and Jesus says okay come on Peter hops out of the boat walks across the water to him. It's pretty incredible if you think about it, right? We, we kind of remember how Peter failed eventually, right? Because that's where we're going to get. We all know that's where the story's going. 
but he actually walked across the water. Let's not lose sight of that part. He was able to walk across the water looking to Jesus. But we see that Peter saw the wind and the the wave, saw the wind, and he was afraid, and he began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. Right, when? When did he start to sink? It's when he saw the circumstances again. Right? He had learned we need to look to Jesus. Ultimately, that's what we need to learn Christ is present, Simon Kistemacher says, in the Christian's heart, fear has no place. In short, Christ is their defense. That is why the most common command in Scripture to the people of God is do not fear. And the most common rationale that God gives his people is because I am with you. Let us remember that and not be shaken, not be worried. Even amidst suffering, We should be known as those who do good. For it is better, Peter says in verse 17, to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So it's not just about facing opposition and persecution. It's about maintaining a good conscience throughout. And that's the the third point, right? Keep a good conscience. Verse 16 talks about that idea of having, having a good conscience. Now, it's not just looking for a, a clear conscience, because it's possible to have a clear conscience, right? But your conscience is clear because it's a rotten conscience, right? right? It, it, it's because you've seared your conscience. It has no sensitivity to it, right? And so you think, ah, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm fine, right? No, you've done lots wrong. You just have seared your conscience, but, but we need to have a clear conscience that is properly functioning, a good conscience then, so that, verse eight, 16 tells us, when you have, are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Put to shame because the reality of our character is such that those who know us and who see us uh, will, will say that this is the type of person who is a compassionate and merciful and loving person, the type of person who is constantly in their life exhibiting the fruit of the spirit love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control i'm going to be honest with you my brothers and sisters in christ too often we exhibit the type of behavior that is unloving and joyless and combative and impatient, and unkind, and even evil, and faithless, harsh, and undisciplined. We convince ourselves that that we have to do it that way. We have to live that way. Otherwise, the world will just eat us up and spit us out. And and if we don't do things that way, then, then we'll just be crushed. There's no room for meekness, but Jesus tells us instead, Matthew 10, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, yes. So be as wise as serpents, but be as gentle as doves. He calls us to a meekness, and he shows us that meekness. We, we, we don't need to respond in kind. We don't need to lash out in response to others who, who are evil toward us. We, we feel like we need to fight fire with fire. We feel like we need to, to seek vengeance and vindication, but but we don't. Edmund Clowney puts it so well when he says Christians are free from the need of vindication and filled with humility as heirs of grace. 
Suffering has become an opportunity to meet evil with good and cursing with blessing. Peter describes the triumphant witness of this response. So if we're going to respond this way, we can only do so by following Peter's instructions. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Again, he's he's looking back to Isaiah 8 that we read before. The Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread. Isaiah had told the people not to fear the invading armies of Assyria. Let the Lord be your fear. Honor him as holy. And in your hearts, Peter says, Christ the Lord is holy. He identifies Jesus with God here. He says, he, he says, Jesus is this God whom we serve. Jesus is this God who is other. Jesus is this God who is Lord. He is the master, the one that we need to obey. And so we need to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. He assumes that people will be asking this question. He assumes people will look at us and they will say, when, when I look at these members of Calvary Presbyterian Church, I see in them a life that is different. I see in them a life that is, is joyful. I see in them a life that, that even, even deals with the opposition of persecution and, and of suffering in such a way that they are different than the rest of the world. And I need to know what it is that makes them different. And, and when they come asking that question, we need to be able to answer it. That's what he's saying. And so we must know the gospel. We must know the fact that we are saved not because of our good works, not because of any righteousness that is in us, but because of the righteousness of Christ Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. We must know that things are not the way that they were originally created, that this world is broken and fallen because of sin, but that Jesus is returning and he will set all things to rights. We must know that this is the gospel. We must know that Jesus is our hope, but not just our hope, he is the hope of the nations. He is the only hope. Now that's not a popular message these days. People don't like that message. Anytime you start talking about exclusivity like that, they don't like, if he works for you, that's great, you do you. But when we say Jesus is the only hope, that's where we lose most people. Yet we need to proclaim this with confidence, with assurance, with certainty. And yet, as Peter puts it, at the same time with gentleness and respect. It's hard to do. It's hard to do it's the idea Paul speaks about in Ephesians 4.15 of speaking the truth in love. In closing today, I, I just want to kind of give one example of how we can do this. Right, this is, this is uh, very intentionally picking kind of a, a hot button issue here. Not because I like hot button issues. I think you know me well enough to know that's not the type of things that, that I necessarily uh, naturally gravitate to, but but I think it's important uh, to be able to deal with these types of things. Uh, I, I was looking the other day at the EPC, our denomination, at the position paper that they put together 
on the issue of abortion. And I was struck by how good a job our denomination has done of, of dealing with this issue in a way that is speaking the truth in love, that is both trying to hold to what we believe to be true and yet be gracious and loving at the same time. Basically, what the statement says is that the EPC is convinced that the Bible strongly affirms the dignity and value of every human life. I hope at that point everybody can agree with that. I mean, not just people here, but everyone, right? right? That, that every human life has a certain amount of dignity uh, that, that should be afforded to it, a certain amount of value that is afforded to it. Now, now the question then becomes, of course, like, like when does life begin, right? Some people would vary and disagree on that issue, and that's kind of what, what changes things. Now, now, what the EPC position paper puts forth is this idea that I think we should hold to, that, that if we look at it scientifically, we see that you know, a, a fetus in the womb is... is has its own DNA, its own structure, right? So if we look at it scientifically in that way, it looks like an individual. If we look at it on an ultrasound, we can see, boy, that looks like a human being. If we look to God's word, most importantly, we can see things like Jeremiah 1, 5, that says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Or Isaiah 49, which says, before I was born, the Lord called me from my womb. He has spoken my name. Or in Luke 1, where it speaks of, John the Baptist and says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Right? So the, the EPC position paper unequivocally says that, that even in the womb, this is a living human being with, with all the, the rights a human being should have. Right? We're called to, as we said in our Psalm 146 in our use of scripture reading, uphold the widow and the fatherless. Right? This idea is the that, that, that's given that we, we are to speak for those who are voiceless and powerless, not to, not to turn to those who are, are platformed and powerful, right? So, so the idea being that, that those who are the unborn children are, are among the most powerless, the most voiceless. And so we are called unequivocally to speak out on their behalf. At the same time, the EPC position paper is equally unequivocal, right? I'm going to read just a couple parts of the statement right here because I thought it was so well worded. One, a woman facing a problematic pregnancy or an unexpected pregnancy should expect to receive support, love, acceptance, and wise counsel from her pastors, counselors, physicians, and fellow Christians. Regardless of the woman's decision, the church should always provide compassionate, biblical, and spiritual guidance to that individual. We should never write anyone off for any reason. There is never anyone who has done anything that is beyond the love of Christ Jesus, nor should be beyond our love. Number two, the church must serve as a loving and supportive community to any man involved to inform and direct him in his personal responsibilities and obligations as the child's father. Don't let fathers off the hook, right? They are responsible. We need to hold them responsible. The church must be supportive of the woman who chooses life for the child of an unexpected pregnancy and must seek ways to support and care for those children carried to term through unexpected pregnancies. If we want to walk 
or talk the talk. We need to walk the walk. We need to be supportive. Uh, we need to adopt. We need to foster people. We need to support adoptive and foster parents. And as a side note, just one of the greatest things about uh, one of the ministries that this church supports is the, the Open Hand Children's Home that we support in Kenya. It's a beautiful thing, supporting children who are unwanted children. Well, we should probably do more of those types of things here in America. We have... Uh, we should look into that more. We don't have time right now to talk about that. But finally, the, the statement says that the church must serve as a loving and supportive community to those who have experienced physical, emotional, or spiritual wounds as a result of undergoing an abortion or placing a child for adoption. Right? No matter what decisions people have made in the past, they should be made recipients of the loving care of Christ Jesus. It is there for all of us. and We must be vessels of that loving care. I think our denomination has done a wonderful job of marrying these two ideas here, just in this one topic, right? And this idea of saying, here's where we stand in truth, and yet we must be steadfast in love. We must always do this with gentleness and respect. We must, as Paul says in Colossians 4, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person so we look not to politics we look not to power but rather we look to the one who said to us come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So wherever you are today, whatever you've done, whatever you've decided, whatever you've done in your life, you can turn to Christ Jesus today. You can know the Father's deep love for you, and you can come today just as you are with no goodness of your own, but with all of the goodness of Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord God, may we know your goodness more and more. May we turn to you, love you, and walk with you. And may we constantly be speaking the truth in love sharing the reason for the hope that we have but doing so with gentleness and respect we pray this in Jesus name amen